Jesus had more to say about money than um, just about any other topic and its use and uh, what it does and what it is. And, and we're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. You'll find... Luke chapter 12, 13 to 21 on page 871 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, there's a copy in the pouch in front of you. You take it, put your name in it, and receive it as a gift from this church family. I want you to listen to what Jesus had to say about money and greed. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. It's the quintessential American Great Depression success story. Charles Darrow, in the 1930s, was an out-of-work heater salesman in Pennsylvania. He had a wife and two children, and he was trying to make a living. He had this idea about this game, because he knew families during the Great Depression couldn't do much, but they could be together. And he kept thinking about this game. He'd go down into his basement And he'd retreat there, and night after night after night, he would try to refine this game that he was working on, and he finally did it. And it's become the world's most popular game. You know what it is. Monopoly. Yes. You've got it in your closet. Right? I don't know much about you, but I know you have Monopoly. Right? Monopoly. He came up with this game, and and he sold it to Parker Brothers for uh, $7,000 plus residuals, 
And they thought they paid too much. The first year, they sold 278,000 copies at two bucks a game. Okay? Because it was cheap entertainment for families during the Depression. The next year, they sold 1.75 million copies of Monopoly. The brass at Parker Brothers could not believe their luck. I mean, they'd hit gold. And, and so very quickly, they applied for a patent on Monopoly, thereby monopolizing Monopoly. It's an amazing story during the Depression that made Charles Darrow wealthy and Parker Brothers even wealthier. What a story. And it's just that. A story. <laughs> that's not really what happened. I know that's what story is told in the instructions in your game, Monopoly, but that's not really what happened. So says Mary Pylon in her newly published book just last month, uh, The Monopolists. Uh, uh, fury, obsession, and scandal over the world's most popular game. According to Mary Pylon, uh, Monopoly was actually a copycat from another game that was invented around the year 1900 uh, by a woman whose name was Elizabeth McGee, Lizzie McGee. And the name of the game was called The Landlord's Game. Now take a look at that. It's a striking familiarity with, uh, with Monopoly. Uh, the landlord's game was actually, originally, a teaching game. Uh, uh, a morality game. And do you know what the lesson of the game was supposed to be? The lesson of the landlord's game was actually uh, to teach uh, against the evils of Excessive private property ownership <laughs> and hoarding and greed. And Milton Bradley, I mean, he wanted his games to be educational. Parker Brothers go, educational? We want it to be entertaining. She had two versions of this game. In one version, any of the players who accumulated money had to share it with the other players. Nobody really got excited about that version. <laughs> the other version of the game was a dog-eat-dog, kill-or-be-killed, aggressive, crush-the-competition game. Now that was fun. Guess which one Parker Brothers went with? Yeah, exactly. And so when they applied for the patent, they had to have a creation story. And that was the creation story, Charles Darrow's story. He kind of went with it. Oh, he had a little bit to do with it, but it wasn't really quite what the story you see in your instructions. Yeah, Monopoly. Very interesting, huh? How many of you like to play Monopoly? Yeah, I don't care for it myself. <clears throat> For two reasons. Number one, I really don't care for the 
cutthroat urge that the game often inspires. And number two, probably more importantly, I always get my throat cut <laughs> by my sons. I brought you into this world. What? And then my wife, my wife. You know, you know. And if I can't win, I don't want to play. <laughs> it's really interesting, isn't it? Monopoly, you know? At folks during the Great Depression who didn't have any money could play this game and kind of have virtually experience what it was like to have money and, 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 and to virtually experience this, this thing on accumulating and, 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 and greed, a story of greed. Jesus told a story about greed in Luke chapter 12, our scripture. You know, he really didn't start out by talking about greed, did he? If you look at Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus isn't talking about greed right away. He's talking about eternity. Thousands have gathered to hear him speak. So much so that they're trampling on one another. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus begins talking about eternity. He, he, he tells the crowds, he tells his disciples to be aware of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, he says. He says, you know, what they're doing in the dark will one day be brought to the light. One day. He's pointing God's people toward eternity. Then he goes on to tell them, I don't want you to be afraid of those who can kill the body but not the soul. What's he doing? He's pointing people toward eternity. He's trying to give them an eternal perspective. There's this life, and then there's the life to come. And, and then he says, I don't want you to be afraid of acknowledging the Son of Man before people, because if you will acknowledge the Son of Man before people, then one day the Son of Man will acknowledge you before the angels. See, he's pointing to the next life. There's this life, and then there's the life to come. There's eternity. There's eternity. Develop an eternal perspective. And above all, Jesus says, I want you to avoid what Paul David Tripp calls eternity amnesia. Eternity amnesia. Eternity amnesia afflicts those who feel that this life is all there is. Eternity amnesia will cause you to forget that there is a life to come. Eternity amnesia will cause you to neglect the afterlife, to neglect the new heavens and the new earth and the new body. Eternity amnesia will cause you to focus on merely the here and the now. Eternity amnesia says you live, you die, and your body's just food for worms. Eternity amnesia. Avoid that, Jesus says. You live, you die. You food for worms. Well, according to that great theologian, Bagger Vance. Remember Bagger Vance? Remember that? Remember that scene in the movie? You live, you die, you're food for. That's a sad story, Mr. Juna. And that is the dumbest thing. I ever heard any fool say, ever, you got yourself a hard eye, Mr. Juno. <laughs> Soul's born with everything, then it dies. And then... You're a funny man, Mr. Juno. You're a funny man. 
eternity amnesia. Avoid that. There's, a, there's this life and there's a life to come. That's Jesus' message here. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this message, someone interrupts him. You, you see it there, don't you? Teacher, verse 13, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Where did that come from? I mean, I've been interrupted by, you know, ringing cell phones and singing babies, but honestly, I've never had anyone stand up in the middle of my lesson and say, Pastor, I've got an, I've got an inheritance issue with my brother I want you to resolve. Not that I'm asking for that, please. But that's what's, why, what's that all about? Well, here's what that was all about. Back in the first century, uh, rabbis would resolve those kinds of conflicts. In fact, some of the rabbis kind of liked it because it made them feel important and kind of stroked their egos. And so this brother, probably a younger brother, and I say that because uh, their father has passed away and with no will, automatically the eldest son would be responsible to be the executor of the will and then under Hebrew law, without a will, the eldest brother would automatically get twice as much as all the other siblings. That was the way it worked back then. And so, this older brother has two-thirds of the estate, but he's supposed to give a third of it to the younger brother, and the younger brother, you know, for whatever reason, he hasn't gotten his check yet, and so he's wanting Jesus to resolve this issue for him. But notice what he does not say to Jesus. He doesn't say, teacher, my brother and I have a terrible problem, I, but I love my brother. I, I want a relationship with my brother, and uh, I don't want money to come between our family. Would you please help us? Bring us together. Listen to what I have to say, and listen to what he has to say. And we promise that whatever you have to say, we will do it because you are the king. I do not want money to divide our family. Please, Jesus, help. He does not say that. That is not what he says. He basically wants Jesus to rubber stamp his version of justice. And I'll tell you this. If there is not a higher justice that will judge your justice, can you really say that your justice is just? He wants Jesus to fix his problem. He wants Jesus to fix his brother. That's what he wants. And Jesus is saying, your inheritance is not my business. It's not. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 14. Man, that's kind of a derogatory term. Man. And who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now that is such an important question because Jesus is the second Moses. You remember the first Moses, don't you? The first Moses said there was going to be another Moses that was going to come later in the history of God's people. But the first Moses was in a similar situation in which he inserted himself between two Hebrews and he tried to fix it. And what did they say? They said to this first Moses who appointed you to judge between us. The second Moses flips that question to these two Hebrews who appointed me to be your judge. Your inheritance is not my business. And then he said, verse 15, take care, here it is, and be on your guard against all covetousness, all pleonexias, 
pleonexias, covetousness, greed, greed. Jesus says in no uncertain terms that this man's problem is not justice. This man's problem is greed, greed. Greed wants more than I need out of fear or idolatry. Greed wants more because greed worships a false god. Greed grasps for more than my share out of neglect for others. Greed craves to get more and more money, more and more stuff, more and more possessions because I love and trust and obey such things more than I love God. There's many definitions to greed, and nearly all of them contain the word more. More. More money will not make you less greedy because it's not a money problem. It's a heart problem. Now, I'll tell you what else is in almost every definition, explicitly or implicitly, not just the word more, but the word my. My, me, mine, myself. So, so, so greed isn't just I love stuff, but I love my stuff. I love myself for owning my stuff. Greed isn't just happy with possessing the possession. Greed gets its kicks out of being the possessor of the possession. Greed seeks self-love in loving stuff, which makes greed a disordered love, a perverted love. Greed is literally too much of a good thing. James Ogilvie, in the book Wicked Pleasures, wrote these words, Greed turns love into lust, leisure into sloth, hunger into gluttony, honor into pride, righteous indignation into anger, and admiration into envy. If it weren't for greed, we would suffer fewer of the other vices. Greed. Perverted and disordered love. And then Jesus says, take care. Why would he need to say that? Well, isn't it because greed is hard to see in the mirror? It's really hard to see in the mirror. I don't know a time when, you know, our congregation has come to our elders and prayed, and, 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 and we, we pray again over those prayer requests that we receive on Sunday. I don't know in any of our elders' meetings have any of our elders said, we have one of our flock who's really struggling with greed. I know we don't hear that. It's hard to see in the mirror. It really is. Now, it's not difficult to see it in your mirror. (laughs) I mean, we can see it in this man's life. It's very easy to see it in this man's life. It's hard to see it in our own life. Jesus really defined greed in this way. Did you see that phrase? A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus simply said that greed is who you are is what you have. That's, That's where greed shows its ugly head, is when you believe in your heart or who you are is what you have. I am my stuff. And as long as we believe that I am my stuff and that who I am is what I have, then I'm going to want more, and I'm going to want bigger, and I'm going to want faster, and I'm going to want cleaner, and I'm going to want newer, and I'm going to want higher, and I'm going to want taller. And that was the story behind the story before Jesus tells the story of this rich fool Verse 16, he told them a parable, a land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
So this already wealthy farmer had a bumper crop. It was a great year. It was one of those rare years when the price was at its peak and the supply was at its peak. It was better than expected. He harvested not only over and above, but over and above his over and above. And verse 17 says, well, uh, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, that's kind of a good news, bad news verse. Here's the good news. He asked the right question. I mean, that's a great question. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? A perfectly appropriate question. The windfall has flooded his life, and he needs to think about what he's going to do. That's the good news. The bad news is he has no sounding board. He has no mastermind group. He has no friends to seek counsel from. Literally, it says, he dialogued with himself. Now, you know, as 21st century Americans, we would look at that and we would say, oh, that's really cool and wonderful and clever how in the first century they would allow us into the psychological mind of one of the characters of the parable. He dialogued with himself. What wonderful literature. That's really not what Luke was trying to say. Luke was trying to say, he is sad. He's sad because, you see, in that culture, there was such a high sense of community. One of the scholars wrote this. In the Middle East, village people make decisions about important matters after discussing the situation long and hard with their friends. Whether it involves their property or someone else's property, there was such a high degree of community and oneness. There was just always going to be conversation and deliberation, but apparently this guy has no friends. He's a loner. He, he has allowed his windfall to become a wall between himself and the community, and therefore he's isolated. He seems to be the living example of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8. What sorrow for you who buy up house after house and field after field until everyone is evicted and you live alone in the land. That's this guy. This farmer has this abundant blessing. He has a very important decision to make. And he has no one to seek counsel from but himself. So he says, well, I don't have enough room to store all my surplus surplus. What should I do? Now, you and I know exactly what he should do. You know, you know that, listen, if you don't have enough room to store all your surplus surplus, maybe you should look around the room. And look at the lives of other people. Hello? I mean, we can see. We can see it in his mirror, but he can't see it, can he? He just assumes, when I have extra, it's for me. When my basement is full and I have more, then I just need to build a bigger basement. That's what I need to do. He says in verse 18, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. But why does he want to do that? Why does he want to build a bigger basement for his extra, extra? Verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So he was planning for the future, but he didn't plan far enough in advance. He was only planning for 20 or 25 years. He should have been planning for 25 million years. But he didn't, did he? 
He, he thought the length of his life was tied to the abundance of his stuff. He thought, since I have, well, X number of years of stuff, then that means I'm going to have X number of years of life. His problem was not that he was rich. That was not his problem at all. His problem was he didn't know why he was rich. He didn't know why he was rich. Eternity amnesia will do that to you, by the way. Eternity amnesia will turn you into a functional atheist. Eternity amnesia will lead you to live a life without factoring God into any dealings of your life. Eternity amnesia will do that. And that's this guy. He has not factored God into his life at all. He's just talking to himself. He's using words like I, me, my, myself. Even when he says you, he's talking about him. There's no mention of what his employees are going to do. He has employees. He's got that big land. He's got that big surplus. He's got that big crop. He's no mention. It's just my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. My soul. Unwittingly, unwittingly, this man has stripped himself of the image of God. Listen, your life was made for more than eating and drinking. He reduces himself to an animal. Just an animal. Uh, uh, one commentator who lived a thousand years ago, the guy's name was Ibn Al-Tayyib. He wrote a commentary on this very parable, and this is what he had to say. This man reduces himself to an animal. He imagines that the self is animal-like and that its highest pleasure and greatest form of satisfaction is eating and So while he's eating, and while he's drinking, and while he's merrymaking, guess what happens? God steps into his story. Verse 20. The most important two words of this parable. Here. But God. But God. This man's reality wilted in the presence of ultimate reality. This man's house of cards came crashing down and without warning, the one whom he had ignored his entire life appeared and spoke. But God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. That's financial language, by the way. That's, that's money language. That's, that's loan language. God's calling the note. The loan is due tonight. What loan? The loan of your life. I loaned you your life. And tonight, I want it back. Why? Because he owns the note. That's why. And Jesus said, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Whose will they be? By the way, what's the answer to that question? Whose will they be? Whose will they be? Here's the answer to that question. Somebody else. Somebody else. Someday, somebody else is going to get all you 
Somebody else will. Somebody else, someday somebody else is going to fight over your stuff. Just like those two boys, those two brothers in this parable. See how it's all tied together? Someday somebody else is going to get all you own. And listen, it's really not because you're that generous. It's not. Do you know why? Do you know why they're going to get what you own? Because you're dead. Really? That's why. And so, so, you know, here was this rich man who made four fatal foolish mistakes. Foolish mistake number one. He assumed that his life was his possessions. He assumed, I am my stuff. Foolish mistake number two. He assumed that he was the source of his stuff. He assumed that he had control over his stuff. But that's not true. You know that. In fact, the parable doesn't say that he made the money. What does it say? It says that the land produced a plentiful crop. He didn't have control over the land. He didn't have control over the weather. He didn't have control over the sun. He didn't have control over the wind or the rain or the insects or the locusts. He wasn't the source of his stuff. God was the source of his stuff. Foolish mistake number three. He assumed that the length of his life was somehow tied to the amount of his stuff. And foolish mistake number four, he thought he owned his life. He thought it was his life. And he discovered that not only were his possessions on loan from God, but his very life was on loan from God. His very life. It wasn't just that he had hoarded his stuff. It was that he had hoarded his life. Verse 21 says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So, 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 so what does that mean? It means that someone else got all he owned and this guy had absolutely nothing to show for it in the life to come. This guy thought that after he was done storing up all of his extra, extra, that his responsibilities were over. Not true. From God's perspective, his responsibilities had just begun. But this guy defaulted and he missed the opportunity to be rich toward God. And 1,600 years ago, 1,600 years ago, another pastor stood before the congregation where he was serving and preached on this very parable and said these words. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Jesus said to this man, you don't have a problem with your brother. You got a problem with your heart. Because greed is a heart issue. Greed is a heart disease. So how's your heart? How is your heart, by the way? What dominates your heart? When our hearts pay attention to what the world is trying to peddle us, we are going to feel an artificial poverty that's going to create an unnecessary anxiety. And that anxiety is what's going to drive our greed. That that anxiety is what's going to fuel greed because anxiety asks 
every what-if question imaginable. What if it gets lost? What if it gets scratched? What if it gets stolen? What if it gets stained? What if there's not enough? What if I don't get my fair share? What if she gets more? What if the economy collapses? What if Social Security fails? What if? What, 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 what if? Anxiety. But the gospel tells us of God's loving provision. Jesus goes on to say in the rest of this chapter, I want you to know that there is a God in heaven who loves you and who is the source of all of the gifts that he has created for you and me. And that's why after this parable, look in verses 22 uh, down to 31, he reminds us that he who clothes the lilies and he who clothes the grasses of the plains and, and he who feeds the birds, even those mangy ravens, How much more value are you? If God takes care of them, he's going to take care of you. Trust him day by day by day. The Lord's prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. Because God wants us to walk by faith one day at a time. And ultimately, the one who has given us every good and perfect gift from above has given us the most perfect gift, the bread of heaven came. Jesus came to offer himself so that our hearts might be transformed and belong to God. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus craved. See, greed is a crave, but Jesus craved a deeper, purer, higher, stronger craving. He craved you for his Father's glory in his kingdom forever. And now, in his death and burial and resurrection, having sent his Holy Spirit to overwhelm us with new desires, desires that overwhelm the the, the earthbound desires that greed has for us. He's given us better desires, higher desires, holier desires. Listen to me. Gospel desires kill greedy desires because the gospel kills greed. And the gospel allows us to be free from anxiety so that we may be free for generosity. And gospel generosity kills greed. (laughs) Secular philosophers have come to this conclusion. How much more ought spirit-filled believers that gospel, gospel, gospel frees us for generosity? That's why Jesus says in Luke 12, 32, you don't have to be afraid, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So you can share. You, and and, and you, can, you can read Proverbs and you can go to the ant who stores up for winter. But the ant does that without anxiety. Huh? No. Ants don't take Pepsid. Do they? You ever seen an ant eat an antacid? No. Why? Well, because they just prepare for winter, but they can get on with their life. The gospel so infects our lives 
that yes, we can learn from the ant, but we don't have to be anxious and put away our Pepsi. We can be free to share. Verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says that money is a spiritual issue and spending is a spiritual decision. And so, and so, Jesus calls the question, what does God want you to do with your extra, extra? Well, what if we paused? What if we asked, you know, I have more than I need, so I already have enough, so why do I? Look, if I, have to, if, if I already have more than I need, why should I buy that? I mean, because then I'm going to have to maintain it and clean it and dust it and fill it and wash it and clean it and polish it and wax it and sweep it. What, what should I be doing with this extra? Maybe God wants me to give it to somebody else, maybe. And when we start thinking like that, then our lifestyle will stop chasing our income. See, the temptation is to assume that it's just about money. It's not. It's about your heart. It's about your perspective. It's about what perspective you have. This world only or the life to come. And so, you see, it's not where I just share my money, but I share my life, my abilities, and all that I have, it's surrendered to God for his glory. Listen, here it is. All kinds of greed gets killed by all kinds of giving. All kinds of greed gets killed by all kinds of giving. Gospel-driven giving destroys greed. Gospel-driven giving destroys greed. But you knew that already. I know you did. One of you sent me a letter telling me your story. True story. One Sunday morning, I was given a $20 bill by my mother. Do something fun, she said. It's been the most fun I've ever had with a $20 bill. I decided to give it to my son, who at the time was in college and could use the gas money. So after I gave it to my son, I arrived home, and there was a birthday card in the mail for me. Inside the card was $20. I thought to myself, God just replaced the $20 I just gave to my son. So I decided to put the second $20 in the offering plate. Keep giving it away, I said. And when I returned home from church, I found a $20 bill sitting on top of my microwave. I said, this is odd. I rarely use cash. I know I didn't have $20 on that. So I remembered that I owed a friend $20, and I gave it to her. And when I got to work on Tuesday, my boss had a little birthday gift for me. You guessed it, a $20 bill. So I knew that God wanted me to continue what he had started. I prayed about it, and he led me to someone who needed to be reminded for the very first time that God loved her. So I sent an anonymous note telling her how much God loved her and that this was a very small reminder of just how much. I am now waiting anxiously for my next $20, excited to see where God leads me with it. This reminded me of the fish and the loaves. I have been able to give $20 to four different people, and it all came from one $20 bill. I hope he continues this. What fun. Now, that's a game you can play. The game of grace giving. Gospel giving. Gospel giving kills greed. And the privilege that I have is that I get to rub shoulders with such a saint as this. I get to be this person's pastor. And no, I'm not going to tell you who it is. I will in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm going to blab it all over there. Oh, yeah. But you know what? This dear saint is not the only one who gets it. 
I believe as a congregation, we get it. I really do. And here's why I say that. So three weeks ago, three weeks ago, you know, we had that eight inches of snow. Well, that means there's no church. And you know what that means, too? There's no sermon. That means there's no corporate singing. And there's no offering. Yeah. Three weeks ago, zero in the plague. I can tell you this. I know that there would be some pastors that would freak them out. The very next week, we didn't have to talk about that. You never heard anybody. You know what Katie talked about three weeks ago? Rwanda. And that week, God gave through you over $65,000. You don't need to be told. You know, okay, well, yeah, we just couldn't meet together this week. Next week, we'll get together. You don't have to be told. You get that. You get that. And by the way, the best time to talk about generosity and, and greed and giving is when, is when you get it. Because you get it. Keep getting it. And keep giving it. And keep sharing it. Because God has not given us just 20 bucks. He's given us his son. His son who himself, when he came, he said, take my life for theirs. Take my hands, take my feet. And they nailed him to the cross. Take my voice. And he said, Father, forgive them. He said, take me, take me. And now he's given us his spirit. And now we, with his heart, can say, oh God, who do you want me to bless today? Gospel giving kills greed.